Welcome to Millennial 722. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Do you guys have a number that rhymes with you like I do? I don't think so. I don't so. think so. It would have to be something that rhymes with la, and I don't think any numbers. And Yeah, mine a, would be raw. Maybe a number in Spanish or another language. Um, but this is why I'm the host. Perhaps. We were trying to figure out who should host. Right. That's how it works. And we said it has to be somebody whose name rhymes with an episode mm. number every 10 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I want to start the show with a warning to everybody. The millennial lifestyle subsidy is over. Now, what does this mean? So tons of apps over the past decade, Uber, Lyft, MoviePass. Remember when we were talking about that all the time? E-scooters like Bird and Lime. Washio, which is one I hadn't heard of before. ClassPass, that gets you into all kinds of gym classes. HomeJoy, house cleaning. Uh, they've been offering these dirt cheap rates over the past 10 years to get us addicted to their services, but those prices meant they were losing money year after year. And a lot of people may have heard about this. Uber hasn't turned a profit yet. They lose millions of dollars every year, and yet investors are still like, here, have all of our money. We don't care. Well, now it is finally caught up to all these companies, and millennials who got addicted to these apps are suddenly going to have to start paying a lot of money to use these apps again. Has anybody looked at the prices of Ubers or Lyft over the past year? Because they have gone up a lot. The average ride costs 40% more than it did a year ago. Now, part of this is due to increased demands and not enough drivers. But the other part of it is that Uber wants to finally start trying to make some money. Have you two been in a ride share in the, in the past year? Not since everything shut down. Yeah, my most recent example was in New Orleans. And I noted at the time that it seemed like the Ubers were really expensive. But I was like, maybe that's just surge pricing for this area. I don't know. But it was definitely something yeah. that stuck out to me. It could be the new normal. And it's going to turn me off from using Ubers or Lyfts. I, too... I've maybe only used it once or twice in the past year, in part, well, in large part because of the pandemic. Interestingly, yellow taxi cabs are growing in popularity again due to increased fees and longer wait times from Uber. So that's good because taxi drivers were getting killed by Uber and Lyft. Another app, Airbnb, the average daily rate has increased 35% in the first quarter of 2021. And Laura, you noticed yeah, this too? Yeah, so when you put this note in here, I went looking at our Airbnb that we booked in New Orleans. Um, it was in the Central Business District, not too far away from the French Quarter. And at the time that we booked it, it was $87 a night. And most of the places that were comparable, like it was a condo type deal, um, in that area were ranging from about $85 to $90 a night. I looked it up yesterday. The average is $120 a night now. Wow. Yeah. That's a yeah. big bump. And John- It is a big jump. Who's listening live right now, he said, I just had a lift ride to go two miles and it cost $25, including- Holy what? shit. That's ridiculous. Remember- in 2012, I still remember my very first Uber ride because I was so blown away. It was in some California beach town. My friend had called it because I had never heard of Uber before. This big black SUV rolls up, takes us, you know, wherever we want to go. And it was like 10 bucks, you know, a fancy big ass car. And it was just unbelievable at the time. These cars can pick you up anywhere and take you anywhere you want to go, and it's cheap. Well, that fantasy is now over. And this this is going to be scary news for a lot of people who maybe depended on Uber or Lyft. On the flip side, 
maybe the past year has taught you or ourselves how to live life without Lyft and Uber. I'm kind of at the point now, now, yes, I did move, but I'm also at the point now where I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to use these again, A, because of the costs. And around here, nothing's really close. You have to drive. Uh, you got to put a lot a lot of mileage down to get to the strip, for example, in my case. Um, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> but I just, I refuse to pay, you know, like 50 bucks to to go, you know, take a 20, 30 minute trip one way. Yeah, it's just unfortunate because I think of cities like Atlanta, um, my home, that don't have great mass transit. And when these rideshare yeah. services were more affordable, it was really advantageous for people who didn't have cars who maybe, you know, they were going to a job interview and they didn't want to, like, have to run and sweat through their interview clothes to, like, get there on the metro, for example. Um, so this does suck for a lot of people who were relying on these services. But it was all too good to be true. Yeah. It was just not sustainable for a service like this to be so cheap. And now we just have to face reality that this type of thing cannot survive and we're going to have to make do without it. Another little antidote shared by Katie a few weeks ago, I needed to take an Uber in the morning and it was going to be over $60 before tip to go two miles. That's ridiculous. You have to be able to get cheaper rates with like a normal taxi cab, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Because those don't fluctuate. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, not based on demand, at least. So how does Uber and Lyft, how do these companies expect to survive? Because... If the prices are this steep, who's going to use them? I mean, rich people still will. It's a good question. Or drunk people who don't care. I guess if you're like, (laughs) well, even then it's like too much. But I guess if you're splitting the fare among maybe three people. Yeah. You know, it's just going to be a painful change. In fairness. Yeah. A $60 Uber is way cheaper than a DUI. So if you ever find yourself in that situation where you're like, oh, Uber's so expensive, but also I'm wasted, still take the Uber. Be safe. Yeah. I think I've brought this up on the show before. Yeah. It's hard to imagine how many lives Uber and Lyft have probably saved over the past 10 years because instead of driving themselves, they just took one of these modes of transportation. Hopefully this will also inspire cities to put together better public transportation. And now Uber and Lyft are like, you're welcome. Pay us. <laughs> yeah. 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 The at least going to pay their employees better. I Probably know. That's not. a whole other problem. That's yeah. a whole other problem. The drivers aren't getting paid well and they don't get any benefits. And Uber and Lyft, they're trying to pretend that these drivers aren't employees, even though they're dedicating their lives and many, many hours during the day to make some money being drivers for these apps. Also, DoorDash and Grubhub have been set- steadily increasing their fees over the past year. So, something to just be mindful of. I never use DoorDash and Grubhub because I cannot with these. You got it. You have a delivery fee. You got to tip the driver. You got like a service fee. You got a restaurant fee. And now all those are going up. I can't pay $20 for two bagels. It's always felt way too expensive for me. Yeah. 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 And we've um, vowed to stop using them as well because on the rare occasions where we have used them during the pandemic, one, it's expensive. And two, we have not had a single order get to us correct. It's always missing oh, yeah. something. We had one time where we got like somebody else's complete order, not our own. Um, and it's just like, man, if you're going to pay this much for this service, 
And there are so few people willing to be delivery drivers. So that's another thing. You have to wait even longer than you used to. And then on top of it, it's all wrong by the time it gets to you. Screw that. I'm just going to use Uber Eats as like a menu, basically, to see what's available. And then I'm just going to go pick up my own food. (laughs) Yeah. They also screw over the restaurants, too. They don't pay the restaurants enough either. Right. And restaurants get really annoyed by it, but they have to do it because that's where all the customers are. Right. I guess they just hope that people will like frequent the establishment outside of Uber Eats at some point and then they'll right, get reimbursed yeah. that way. But I have seen some smaller versions of DoorDash and Grubhub pop up uh, on the local level. There's one in Vegas that popped up and, and, and it's like run by people who actually run restaurants. So they understand the needs of the restaurants and the customers. So maybe more of those will rise over in the next couple of years. We'll see. But anyway, again, this is a warning. All these fees are going up. Uh, the glory days are over. Get ready to shell out some cash to go two miles in an Uber. $60 specifically before tip. I'd rather walk too much. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know what's going to be weird is these services, I have a feeling they'll eventually die off or they'll be forced to rebrand and relaunch their businesses. And 20 years from now, the next Uber or Lyft is going to come out and all the kids are going to think it's this like novel new idea. And we're just going to be like, you have no idea. <laughs> 84 years ago when I took Uber, it cost this much. <laughs> And then my friend Pam said, I'd rather just walk. (laughs) Okay, mom, I'm going out now. Bye. Okay. Well, in some good news, the G7 nations have pledged over 1 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses for the rest of the world. Um, And ahead of the G7, President Biden announced the the U.S. is going to be donating 500 million Pfizer vaccines globally. They're going to begin shipping those out in August, with 200 million of them being delivered by the end of the year and the remaining 300 million being delivered by early 2022. That's great. I just felt like that was a good thing to mention because a lot of COVID-related news that we've talked about tends to take a more negative slant. Um, And it was just nice to see some good news related to vaccine accessibility around the world. Yeah, it's a long time coming, but I'm glad that it's finally happening. So it'll be interesting to see if this continues in the years ahead as well. I mean, why not just continue producing them? Because it sounds like COVID is going to be something that's going to be in our lives forever now. You know, we've said this before. It'll be like a a, flu season, COVID season. So we're going to continue needing them. And the rest of the world is going to continue to need these donations, I'm sure. So for as long as it's Biden in office or another Democrat, I can see us producing these for the rest of the world. And on a a different note, although somewhat related, um, for my fellow introverts, I just wanted to put a PSA out there. If you're returning to some semblance of normalcy, you're getting together with friends and family, you're going out to eat, you're just hanging out, and you get home after that and you just feel way more tired, exhausted, drained than you would have expected yourself to. It's completely normal. We've spent the last 14 months not being able to do so much of that. And going back into an environment where you're doing that again, especially if you're more introverted in nature, is very exhausting. I've noticed this over the last couple of weekends because we've been doing more socializing. And yesterday I got home and I was like, I'm so tired. (laughs) 
not in a bad way per se, but just like it does take some ramping up to get used to seeing that many people again. You know what I've noticed is that um, I like my voice feels tired after going to socialize. Yeah. Pam, you've been out to socialize? I have. Are you proud of me? I am. I'm honestly surprised. (laughs) What did you do? Well, I've been like, like my niece had her birthday. And so that was like an actual like bigger situation. And so I had to socialize there, obviously, because they can't just sit in the corner. Um, And I've done like some some like hiking stuff or like coffee meetups with friends and things like that. Um, I'm assuming that at some point very soon, uh, I'll have more friends that want to get together now that things are going to start opening up out here in California. So we'll see. But nice. I love that. I have seen a lot of people share their concerns about, you know, going back out for the first time. People are maybe some people are joking, but then a lot of people are definitely acting like they have forgotten how to socialize, and it's going to be super awkward. I don't know if I buy into this idea. I feel like once you are back with your friends, you're going to be able to jump right back into it like it was yesterday. It's It might be difficult for like 10 seconds, and then you catch up on a particular topic, and it'll just be like old times. I do not buy that people have forgotten how to socialize. So everybody just no. chill out and go talk about something you watched on Netflix. I do kind of wonder if people are saying that in relation to people that they haven't kept as good of touch with during the pandemic. Because I can see how that might be a little bit awkward. Like there are definitely some friends that I, um, you know, like we just don't really do well keeping up via text. Like there are people that just really prefer to catch up in person. And so it is kind of like a little, ooh, now I have to figure out how to do this um, this thing. Uh, but then, like you said, once you get into that situation, it's not as awkward as you think it's going to be. But no, I do think, though, if you have social anxiety or if you feel socially awkward, if that was something you experienced pre-pandemic, it might be something that crops up a little bit when you sort of like do your re-entry to regular life. And that's okay if it does. Um, It's just important to remember to be patient with yourself and with each other because it's going to be an adjustment just like it was for us to go into lockdown in the first place. Um, And Mm -hmm. I've enjoyed my times getting to socialize with people. I've just noticed that when I've gotten home, I have felt particularly drained. I'm anticipating that as time goes on and I get more used to doing that again, I will feel less drained afterwards. Um, But being introverted, that's always been kind of an issue for me anyway. So going back to it after this long has been there's been a little bit of a learning curve with it. And I just wanted to say if you're feeling that way, it's okay. You're not alone. We'll get through it. Yeah. I just think people don't need to worry too much. Because I'm the type of person, too, that in the lead up to the social event, I'm stressing out about it. I'm like, I don't want to go. But once I'm in it, I'm good. I can be there all night. I'm having a great time. So just try to ignore the the lead up that's stressing you out that period. (laughs) Just take shots. (laughs) That's what Andrew does. No, I don't like shots. (laughs) Don't like shots. Did anybody listen to the new Lord single? She's been gone for a while, so I was very excited <laughs> that this dropped last week. Yes. Solar you... Power. It's a good song. Yeah. 
it's not the most exciting song. It's no green light, which I think is one of Lord's best. I think it's a new vibe for her. And um, I think that's really cool that she's experimenting with something new. Yeah. But what is it's new always about like, it? Tell the listeners. I Like you said, well, green light is much more like indie power pop almost. Um, it's like she's always kind of done dream pop with like a bit of synth, but not like that very like full synthy sound. It's always been kind of like toned back, really simple um, uh, synth backbeats and things like that. But solar power is way different from that. It actually kind of like reminds me a little bit of some of the lead off singles from Harry Styles' Fine Line. Mm. Mm-hmm. So stuff like watermelon sugar or adore you um you know that has kind of like a little bit more of that free love vibe <laughs> going on uh but i think it's really fun is that your recommendation for this week pam uh it can be i had something else but i'll go with that and save the other one for next week <gasps> you can always Keeping have more on than edge. one recommendation no because i have trouble like figuring out recommendations so <laughs> so i will make my recommendation lords uh solar power and i will save my recommendation that i wrote down for next week my thing with recommendations is i gotta write them down during the week when i think of them otherwise i will forget come showtime is solar power going to be the song of the summer uh i don't know it's too soon to tell we're still well actually no i was gonna say we're still in may but we're not we're in june so we'll see we'll see what comes out ed sheeran has a new single coming out next week maybe he'll give her a run for his money Ugh, or no for her thanks. money that so. will not be my song of the summer i promise <laughs> well you. you know what if he like drops a banger and you're just like i gotta eat my words now this is the best I, song i've ever heard i've i i'm not an ed sheeran fan <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I feel like this is kind of the time between now and the end of this month is when people tend to drop the most summer singles for consideration. Every once in a while, <laughs> there's a dark horse that comes like, you know, end of July, mid-August. <laughs> and Everybody just gravitates towards that. So we'll see. And sometimes it's Katy Perry's dark horse. That is the dark yeah. horse. John says, what was the song of the summer last year? I would say it was probably WAP. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Not my favorite song, but everybody was talking about it. I mean, for me, the song of the summer is the same song every summer. It's Cool for the Summer by Demi Lovato. I mean, that's it. That will always that's be my song, song of the summer. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I was going around the house. I was alone last week, so I was going around the house all last week going, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> it is time you said to yourself as you <laughs> it is time for the song of the summer bring on the summer solstice let's go <laughs> well we have plenty more to talk about today but first here's something that also reminds me of summer this week's episode of millennial is brought to you by someone who shakes up my evenings hello fresh and we are going to hook you up with some free food so listen up HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes. HelloFresh offers more than 27 recipes to choose from each week, from vegetarian meals and calorie smart choices to craft burgers and extra special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy, with all recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. From working with farmers to reducing waste, there is a lot 
lot to love about HelloFresh. I was saying during last week's After Dark, I love HelloFresh meals because they introduce me to new ideas I never would have thought of before. I haven't met a HelloFresh recipe I haven't adored, and it's these wonderful meals that help put a nice cap on my day. I was just looking at their menu, and this week there's a plant-based ragu rigatoni bake. Oh my gosh, that looks so good, and I want it now. You gotta give them a try. I promise you, you won't be disappointed, and we can hook you up with free food. Go to HelloFresh.com slash M-I-L-L-12 and use code M-I-L-L-12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. This is free food, free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash M-I-L-L-12 and use code M-I-L-L-12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit and my number one way to improve my evenings. Pair it with Demi Lovato, cool for the summer. Mm, I can't think of a better dinner. Andrew, stop playing that on loop. No, it's perfect with this perfect food from HelloFresh. Yeah, I have gone crazy. I think I I definitely need to start socializing with people again. <laughs> All right, Pam, what do you got for us? Uh, I wanted to talk about Ellie Kemper of uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt fame. I think that some of you might have seen that she was trending on Twitter last week. Did you guys catch this? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was pretty crazy. Um, as soon as you clicked on her name, it was just hundreds and hundreds of tweets talking about how she is a KKK princess. And so for those of you who maybe missed this, we're just going to break it down for you. So how it started is that a photo was spread around of Ellie Kemper from 1999 when she was 19 and crowned the Veil Prophet Queen of Love and Beauty out in St. Louis, this is not necessarily very new news. In fact, uh, you know, there there was a couple of Reddit posts around this previously, but anytime Twitter gets a hold of anything, it almost kind of feels like everybody starts talking about it. And so it sort of becomes new news, even though it's not. I mean, like it was in the paper or something that was easy to look up. So uh, it just so happened that it gained a lot of traction this time around. And from there, the internet did what it does best and started poking into the ball's super questionable and racist history. So some background for those of you that don't know, the Veiled Prophet Ball started in St. Louis around 1878, and it was started by Confederate cavalrymen and local business and civic leaders who wanted to make a Mardi Gras-like celebration. Uh, The event centers around a secret board of members composed of local elites, and they select one person to anonymously play the role of the titular veiled prophet and then that person chooses the queen of love and beauty from the elite ball attendees so the ball was actually created with a primary goal of enforcing the power of elite citizens and it was done because at the time that it was created a lot of tension was rising among the working class who was seeking more social and economic justice Um, so the idea was that the event would reinforce the values of the elite on the working class of the city which is not great. Uh, and even though the event has racist roots, technically it has no known ties to the KKK. So this idea of Ellie Kemper being a KKK princess is technically, you know, false. Um, historically, it's been criticized for being exclusionary for the first several decades. Um, Jewish people and black people were not allowed to participate, uh, neither as like board members or any, or as people that were actually invited. And then on top of that, since the event does include a parade and floats, a lot of the featured really racist stereotypes as um, imagery. So that's not good either. But 
One thing that I thought was really interesting while I was researching this is that there was a museum historian on St. Louis who did a, a thread and she was breaking down all of this information of this this ball. And they pointed out that since the ball has rebranded a lot over the course of the last few de- decades in an effort to distance itself from its racist roots, a lot of young teen girls like perhaps Ellie Kemper, that participate in the events, they kind of do so more because of family pressure, especially if they come with family that has a lot of money like hers does. Um, Most of the time, they have zero idea of the background of the event. So they're not even really realizing what they're participating in or agreeing to or anything like that. Um, Ellie Kemper has since apologized. And she said in her apology that regardless of the fact that she had no idea of the ball's history. It's not an ignorance isn't an excuse. So I thought that that was really nice. Um, and since then, the conversation has sort of shifted over to this issue of how oftentimes scandals like this that start happening on Twitter in real time pick up steam before anybody really has time to lay out all of the full facts because everybody's uncovering it in real time. And it's really kind of hard to know who to believe or what sources to believe or whose facts are right and whose facts are wrong and things like that so yeah um what did you guys think about this when you first saw that she was trending if you did well like most people i just read the headline which is ellie kemper kkk princess and i was like oh shit that's really awful but i didn't really look into it any further but i'm also completely aware that people jump to a two conclusions really quick and don't read past the headline and just assume the worst if a certain number of people are complaining about something on Twitter. But we just see how time and time again, you read more details about 95% of things and it turns out it's not as bad as people are actually making it out to be. Um, In terms of this story, like I also don't blame people for not looking into the history of Ellie Kemper. Like, who cares? It's Ellie Kemper. (laughs) Like, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, But I do just hate how quick people are to judge and like maybe just don't say anything at all because maybe there's more to the story. Don't say anything unless you know the whole story. (laughs) That's like a good baseline to start with, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. This was just a pile on like... Twitter in particular loves to find stuff like this and run with it and make these outlandish accusations against people before having all the facts. I remember I saw this trending on Twitter and I was like, there was part of it that just like didn't really pass the sniff test because... right. You know, usually when you're dealing with genuine cases of racism or any other ism, assault, things like that. These things tend to operate in patterns. And my first thought was, I don't think Ellie Kemper's ever done anything. (laughs) Not that I'm aware of or that I can recall. And I ended up reading more into it. And I was like, oh, she was a teenager who was from a wealthy family who took part in an old tradition that she probably didn't know very much about. And that was my interpretation. I walked away at the end of the day. I was like, okay, this is just Twitter being Twitter, you know, but it, you know, thankfully, um, she is in a position to be able to step back and like understand her level of privilege, excuse me, her level of privilege um, and how that, um, you know, can still lead to some unintended 
consequences, like taking part in something like this that she wasn't fully aware of what the background and history was, for example. So Ellie Kemper was able to step back and like view this from more of a a more neutral standpoint and be like, yes, I participated. Yes, I I now understand what it means. Right. Mm -hmm. But it seems like so much of the Internet is incapable of doing that. Yeah, and right. in a way, it's very similar to the, like, the This You tweets. You know, we've talked about those yeah. before mm-hmm. where people will drag up, you know, old tweets that were maybe phrased poorly or back before, you know, ignorant people knew better and stuff like that. And, um, but in a way, it's it's almost worse because it is a pile on and it almost kind of feels like nobody has the facts straight until somebody points them out. But, but then... You know, sometimes this happens to normal people and they're not lucky enough to have a platform where people where people will listen to them and and uh, when they explain why stuff like this happens. So like Laura said, it wasn't passing the sniff test. But I think the reason that it did trend, part of the reason is that it was just so random. It's innocent. Mm -hmm. Good girl Ellie Kemper plus KKK queen. It's like. Wow, this you didn't see this coming. Yeah. So that's part of the reason why it trended, just because it was so bizarre, I think. I know. I, I saw that and I was just like, well, I thought that she had done something recently. Right. That's the <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, what's happening? Oh, no. And like, how old is she right now? Probably upper 30s. I'm yeah, Googling. something like 41. I, it was a long time ago. And I think 19 is, you know, if she was like 25, 30. Okay. Okay. But 19, that's right around where, like, I can excuse her for the age yeah, in also, this story. Also, she didn't know what it was. And right. yeah. it's not, you know, as Pam said, there's no evidence to suggest that it has ties to the KKK. Obviously, all of these overtones of racism and exclusion are terrible. But I wouldn't expect um, someone, particularly someone who comes from that kind of wealthy, like, social elite circle who grew up in that space, I wouldn't expect a 19-year-old person to walk in there and be like, hmm, like, let's deconstruct this and see if this has been exclusionary or problematic in any way. It's just not how also, she's people her, Since her family's loaded, I'm sure yeah. she was just like, well, rich people do weird shit like this all the time, you know? <laughs> right. Another another weird day in Richville. Right. Can't relate, but I'm sure some people can. <laughs> All right. So something else I wanted to bring up. This isn't traditional entertainment pop culture, but Starbucks is pop culture, popular culture. And I wanted to mention that they are bringing back their reusable cup program. At the outset, you put your cup inside a barista's cup so they don't have to touch your cup. You get a 10 cent discount for bringing a reusable cup into Starbucks every time you buy a drink. So that's cool. Starbucks wants to cut their waste in half by 2030. All right. Eight, nine years from now. That sounds crazy ambitious. I think they got they have to do it in other ways besides reusable cups. Somehow, I don't know, give us a dollar off a drink if you really want to reach that sustainability goal. 
Um, I One reason I wanted to bring this up was because at the very beginning of 2020, we said, let's be more sustainable this year. How can we do that? And then we, we came up with some great ideas. We made some commitments. And then the pandemic happened. And so many of those things, so many of those ideas had to be cut back because during the pandemic, everybody had to start using, at least when you were out and about, single-use items, you know, when you were eating or whatever. So you couldn't, for example, bring a reusable cup to Starbucks. They weren't accepting them. So I was curious, are there any efforts amongst the panel here to start being more sustainable when out and about again or at home now that we are exiting the pandemic here in the U.S.? Well, we've been able to bring reusable bags back bags back into the store oh, yeah. for a while now. So mm-hmm. that was just a huge relief because I felt so awful, you know, um, not being able to do that. And for us out here where I'm from, that they we've been charging for plastic bags way longer than so many other major cities. Uh, a lot of cities still don't charge for plastic bags or, or paper Mine bags doesn't. or anything like that. So yeah, so so that just kind of felt like it was just really nice not to to have to do that. I don't know why. It's like it's like a weird like guilt thing when you become so used to doing something that feels good and then you no longer can do it. Um, but I think the next step for for my household will probably be um, uh, getting rid of the the Clorox wipes because those are awful for the environment, probably. So yeah. And that's tough because we've had it so hammered into our heads over the course of the last year that we need to sanitize everything. So then it becomes a question of like, well, how how can we reasonably be sanitizing stuff um, in a way that is sustainable? Yeah. And I know there's an answer to that. It's just not as convenient as being able to take a single use wipe and then throw it in the garbage. The reusable bags one was a really good one. I hadn't thought about that, but I too, a month or two ago, started bringing reusable bags into Trader Joe's specifically once they started allowing those again. You just feel guilty after you get so used to using reusable bags to start taking those plastic ones again, and you know they're just going to sit in a landfill in a landfill forever. I want to start bringing reusable cups into uh, coffee shops. I was really good about that when I was on my big road trip in early 2020, and uh, I felt really good about myself for doing that. And then, of course, the pandemic changed all of that. I also want to start using reusable straws when I'm out and about. I feel so guilty using plastic straws from a restaurant, but I wanted to do it during the pandemic. I didn't want to put my lips on a cup that somebody else had used earlier in the day. That just felt very weird and and. Like I was going to get COVID if I did that. I've never brought a reusable straw, like a aluminum straw around town. It's just something you got to get in the habit of doing. Maybe I just leave it in my car or I attach it to my keychain. I know they have ones that do attach to your keychain and like folds up and stuff. So that's my new commitment for 2021 is starting to u- starting to use those. Uh, but any single use item, I just feel so guilty using these days. I know. Yeah. And I mean... Maybe this is a consequence of me living where I live, but there's just so much single-use product that is just normal 
where I live. So there are certain things you don't even think about. Like, I mean, I'm a frequent visitor to Duncan. And, you know, that means that I'm routinely getting single use plastic or those paper cups. Um, the paper is obviously a little bit better, but it's still not great. Um, and even sometimes when I go to the grocery store, I'll think like, I have reusable bags. I should just bring them. But it's really easy to forget them like in the trunk of your car or at home if you're just not in the habit of doing it. Um, I think starting small, I'll probably commit to getting um, an aluminum straw or one of the like silicone straws that are like bendy, um, something mm-hmm. like that that can easily be carried around because there's really no reason not to do it. Yeah, I carry yeah. them in my I just keep one in my purse. Um, if anybody is going to get metal straws, I would recommend getting the ones with the plastic guard around the tip because uh, you do not want to uh, live in fear of potentially chipping your teeth yeah. on that if you're drinking them Ooh. in the car. Yeah. Oh, in the car. Yeah. Because it's like or bumpy. Anything like that. Yeah. Just I would just get it's just like an extra tip for me is just try and find the ones with with a little silicone tip on the I'm seeing those on Amazon. We use metal straws here at home, like every weekend. I feel like because I I use them for cocktails. Yeah, well, but now I'm like afraid I'm gonna chip one of my teeth. Yeah, I mean, a couple of times I have just like missed, and and I've definitely caught like the end of my teeth. I haven't chipped anything yet, but it's always a fear, and then I have to run to the bathroom and make sure that I haven't chipped anything or anything. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a good tip, Pam. With Mm -hmm. all the wrecks today. Including yeah, that you know, mystery one thing, third one. One thing that I uh, that I haven't stopped doing, even in the pandemic, is bringing a reusable water bottle. Yep. Oh, and yeah. so I I'm going to keep that. doing that. Yeah. I love. God, like I get that. so angry at Costco when I see people with these pallets of water bottles. I know plastic water it, bottles. I'm like, why do you need all that water? Like, come on. It's a point of contention between me and my mom. I keep trying to get her to get. To stop. I don't understand why. They're, like We have a fridge in the house that has a filter. There's no yeah. reason why she needs to keep buying the bottles of water. Yeah. yeah. But she, I guess she she likes to have them for when guests come over. But it's like, we have really good water quality out here in the Bay Area. Nobody's going to turn their nose up at a glass of water. It's fine. My, my parents do it too. And I'm like, why, guys? Why? They just like having those bottles they can grab out of the fridge before they leave for, you know, to drive somewhere. But yeah, reusable water, water bottles are fun. I enjoy it. I bought, um, like we do road trips a lot more these days now that we live somewhere more interesting. And, um, we would buy these big jugs of water for the car just so we could stay hydrated on the go. But then I started thinking like, this is a big hunk of plastic that we're using once and never again. And I don't think you're really supposed to use, reuse those because of the heat and stuff. So we bought a reusable, big reusable water canister. It's like five gallons and I can't wait to start using it because instead of going to the food store and buying these big ass water jugs, I'll now be able to just fill this up, save money and help the environment. Yeah. And if you're really concerned about wanting to make sure that you're getting like the best quality water, they make super fancy water bottles that sanitize themselves and the water in them. They're very expensive, but those are an option. Mm -hmm. 
Pan, maybe we get one of those for your mom. Yeah, maybe we do. (laughs) Well, before we get to some political stories, it's time for a word from this week's sponsor, Stamps.com. Stamps.com lets you skip going to the post office and print all your stamps right at home and at a discount. I love using Stamps.com because they make it incredibly easy to mail a package. You input some simple info to create the label, print it, then you can drop it off at a post office. And uh, you can also have a carrier pick it up or drop it off anywhere that accepts drop-offs. I've got two mailing businesses nearby, and instead of waiting in those lines at those places, I just take two steps in the door, drop my package in the bin, and I'm good to go. Whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle Etsy shop shipping out orders, or just navigating this hybrid work life, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. No wonder over 1 million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off UPS shipping rates. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There is no risk, and with our promo code MILL, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in MILL. That's Stamps.com, promo code MILL. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. What beautiful words. Ah. All right. Well, jumping into politics, I have a story to kick us off that's really more informational at this point, but it is something that we want to keep an eye on because it could have some pretty major impacts down the road. The Supreme Court of the United States has agreed to review a restrictive Mississippi abortion law that could diminish or overturn Roe versus Wade. To provide a little bit of background here for anyone who's not familiar or if you're an international listener and you're not familiar with this, um, Roe versus Wade uh, was a 1973 case based on an instance that occurred initially in 1971 where a woman named Norma McCorvey, who is referred to as Jane Roe in the court documents, filed a lawsuit against the Attorney General of Texas, Henry Wade. She argued that a Texas law banning abortion which had been enforced against her, was unconstitutional. The Texas law at the time only allowed abortion in the event that it was necessary to save the woman's life. So a woman would not be able to have had an abortion on an elective basis at that time. The court ruled 7-2 to that the right to an abortion is a fundamental liberty stronger than the state's interest in the fetus's pre-viability. States are allowed to have regulations restricting abortion access once a fetus is viable, hence the various limits we've seen across states over the years, things like heartbeat bills, for example, that we've heard about over the last few years. Um, You see a lot of states and lawmakers trying to pinpoint this point of viability, aka the point where the fetus could theoretically survive outside the body as being incredibly early, um, which is just scientifically not true. Um, So the Mississippi law in question seeks to ban most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Um, A number of um, states have attempted essentially to pass laws like this because they know they're unconstitutional. And when they get challenged and the Supreme Court agrees to hear them, 
it could potentially diminish or overturn the Roe v. Wade case that originally made abortion the law of the land, (laughs) essentially, Um, that everybody would have that fundamental like liberty and access to it. Um, To drive this point home, a few days after the Supreme Court agreed to hear the Mississippi case, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed an abortion bill banning the procedure as early as six weeks into pregnancy, which for anyone who's ever had a menstrual cycle, um, you'll know that it would be incredibly hard to know (laughs) that early if you're pregnant. So this really cuts a lot of people's access to this service before they're going to know that they're even pregnant. Um, So I wanted to see if y'all had, one, heard anything about this and what the sentiment is in your states, because I'm from a state that tries to restrict access to abortion as much as it can. Right. So I'm curious to know, being somebody who's on the inside of this issue, being from being from Georgia, I'm curious to know what it's like to be outsiders looking in. Obviously, we don't have as many red flags here in California, which I am extremely grateful for. But stuff like this is always really worrisome. And you should worry even if you're in a state that has uh, better access to abortion or even something like Planned Parenthood that could help you, um, you know, avoid pregnancy if you if you need that. Um, Specifically, because what Laura was saying, which is that a lot of these bills are introduced with uh, the ulterior motive to get them up to the Supreme Court. And then that affects everyone. Yep. So that's why this is terrifying and that's why it's important to keep up with with this stuff in particular yeah. whenever you see it in the news because ultimately if Roe v Wade was overturned abortion would be legislated on the state level so it would be entirely up to each state to decide what abortion access looked like in their state so you create scenarios where some states have access some states don't ultimately It hurts poor people the most because those of means are going to be able to drive across state lines or get on a plane and go where they need to go to still have their abortions. Um, But lower income people won't have that level of access. And you start getting into this issue a little deeper and thinking about, well, what does everyone's access to reproductive health care look like in the first place? How much access do people have to birth control methods, to educational resources and materials? And you begin to realize that the deck is stacked against a very specific um, socioeconomic group. And you're just forcing cycles to repeat themselves at that point. So it's really terrifying to see um, something that happened so recently, such a big step that came so recently, potentially being put into question because it's going to this Supreme Court, which has three Mm -hmm. justices on it that were Trump appointees. (laughs) And do you think if the pendulum shifts back towards a more liberal court, we'll, we'll stop seeing all these cases come up? 
because it seems like a lot of these are happening right now because there's a chance it could go up to the Supreme Court. It's definitely increased in frequency because they think they have a chance. Um, What's really terrifying about this, I was doing a little bit of reading. Um, So there's this is by the uh, Guttmacher Institute, which is a policy institute working to advance reproductive and sexual rights worldwide. Um, according to them, 22 states would outright ban or severely restrict access to abortion if Roe were overturned. Nine of those states already have unenforced laws that were on the books pre Roe v. Wade. So abortion laws that um, they never took off their books, but they're unenforceable the way the law stands now. But they would be enforceable as soon as the law was overturned. Um, and then ten of the ten of the states out of these twenty two have already preemptively passed these so called post row trigger laws that would take effect immediately if row was overturned. So a number of these states have been biding their time and building up their arsenal mm. so that they're ready when and if this time comes. Another unsettling thing is that uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today um, was interviewed and said that he uh, that it was highly unlikely that he would allow a Biden Supreme Court nomination to go through the Senate if, after midterms, Republicans take the majority back. So they would effectively be doing exactly what they did to Obama when he nominated Merrick Garland. Um, so McConnell's making it very clear that their strategy is just to continue to obstruct and make it impossible to get any kind of progressive agenda on the books. So that's sorry. Yeah. No, I mean, we've got <laughs> there's a long road ahead of us. Um, the case is going to be reviewed by the Supreme Court in October and we'll hear their decision in early 2022. So just something to be aware of that's happening. Um, and we'll definitely talk more about it in the months ahead as we get more updates. To your question about how things differ in each state, I don't really know too much about how the public viewpoint here in Nevada, but. Laura, I won't forget that when you were visiting me in Chicago, we were Ubering to a pizza place and we passed by a Planned Parenthood and you were like, wow, I can't believe the Planned Parenthood is just sitting there out in the open like that because in Georgia, they're like all hidden away Yeah, or don't exist at all, Planned Parenthood Yeah, we do Georgia? have Planned Parenthood, but they're a lot more discreet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in then, Chicago, it's just I mean, Planned Parenthood. Here it is. Yeah, it was right there in the middle of this busy, not busy street. Yeah, yeah, it was right on a busy street, and they had big signage. Here, it's a lot more discreet because we get a lot of protesters um, who show mm-hmm. up, and and the great irony is protesters will show up any day of the week. Planned Parenthood does not perform abortions every day of the week. There's only certain days they do it. Um, There are even certain Planned Parenthood locations that don't perform abortion services at all. But protesters still show up there to harass anybody going in for um, their reproductive health care needs. So it's really Mm. disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'll never forget that little moment. I was like, really? (laughs) Shit. Wait, your Planned Parenthood is like like a neon sign they're like hey we're playing parenthood (laughs) i'm just kidding it wasn't that uh no it wasn't but it was out in the open it was very visible yeah Mm -hmm. and then i was like anyway time for pizza (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, um, here's some more unfortunate news. Florida recently announced that they will no longer allow schools to teach critical race theory in the classrooms. So this was voted on uh, just at the tail end of last week by the Florida State Board of Education. Uh, the uni- they unanimously approved the ban with Governor Ron DeSantis saying that allowing critical race theory to be taught in the classrooms would teach children that, quote, the country is rotten and our institutions are illegitimate and that that is not, not worth any taxpayer dollars. On Twitter, he continued saying that the amendment protects students from being indoctrinated into a certain way of thinking, adding that critical race theory teaches kids to hate our country and to hate each other. It is state sanctioned racism and has no place in Florida schools. Uh, so before we go any further, I just wanted to know if you guys had heard about critical race theory, because this is something that's being debated a lot right now. And if you actually know what it is. Yep. I know, I know because of today's discussion, because I was okay, reading up fair. on it, but I didn't, I had heard it mentioned from time to time prior to today. Yeah. Um. So I studied critical race theory in grad school. So amazing. Uh, the last few months, really, that this has been making headlines have been, it's been really bizarre uh, to see this and to see these accusations that K through 12 institutions are teaching critical race theory um, because that is not I don't think they know what it is. And I'm sure that mo- and, you know, honestly, we have not specifically talked about critical race theory here on the show but we have in the past talked a lot about the gaps in our grade school education. And so I can guarantee that almost none of us have really dabbled in this at all. I think maybe I might come the closest because in senior year, I was in this um, documentary filmmaking class. And one of the assignments was to examine Brown versus the Board of Education, and how even though that was passed in 1954, I believe, that we're still seeing the vestigial remnants of um, what life was like before that affecting the Black community today. But that was never dubbed as critical race theory, although the idea of that would fit into what this is. Right. So... Essentially, what you're saying, Pam, is that that assignment that you were given is something that an educator could argue was an assignment um, that was conceived of through like as a result of studying the framework of critical race theory, but that your assignment itself was not about critical race theory. Exactly. Exactly. Because it is very, um, I think that you need a little bit more nuance to really go into it. Yeah. So critical race theory, it's first of all, it's a relatively young academic framework. It's only about 40 years old. Um, And it essentially says that racism is a social construct and is thus embedded in our systems. So if you're thinking big, think like our legal systems, uh, our policy, our educational systems, right? And critical race theory 
studies outcomes of scenarios in order to examine the intersection of race and various legal and cultural happenings. Um, So in a nutshell, it's a framework that allows us to identify and examine patterns related to race and racism. So it's not uh, any of the things that Republican lawmakers are saying that it is. 100%. And again, I would be severely surprised if even the most progressive uh, school districts were teaching anything nearly close to what they're trying to ban. Well, I I would just find it really hard to believe that this subject matter would even be accessible to uh, K through 12 learners, just because most of the research that's done on this, they're highly academic scholarly articles that aren't appropriate for those levels of learning. Like not to say the subject matter is not appropriate. It's just that when you're in ninth grade or whatever, you're not being given graduate level uh, research studies to read to learn about concepts yeah that's Mm -hmm. a that's a great point as well so under this new amendment going back to florida for a minute uh curriculum about racism must be quote factually uh, factual and objective Uh, it specifically prohibits the teaching of critical race theory meaning the theory that racism is not merely a product of prejudice but that racism is embedded in american society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons so that's uh, a direct quote from the amendment that was just passed out in florida Uh, it also interestingly bans uh, as part of this the pulitzer prize winning 1619 project which was created by the new york Times Magazine. Um, The special edition reframes American history around the date of August 1619, which is the date in which the first slave ship arrived in America. So teachers cannot use that in their curriculum anymore either. And uh, it's not just a Republicans in Florida problem. Like I said earlier, this is a hot button issue right now. And there are tons of other states that are taking a stab at trying to ban this from schools as well. So Ohio uh, banned it by proxy by banning public schools from teaching any thing that involves, quote, uh, sex, race, ethnicity, religion, color, or national origin is inherently superior or inferior. Uh, Tennessee has bound it outright, just like Florida has. And then there is also a bunch of uh, stuff going down in South Lake, Texas, and also Reno, Nevada, with parents uh, pushing back on the idea of critical race theory being taught in classrooms. So it's a lot of people feeling really uncomfortable with the idea of any form of racism and how it's still uh, viable today being taught to their students. Yeah. Uncomfortable with the truth being taught. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Which is really funny because the the whole band is is saying that they have to be truthful in what they teach students. So it would be truthful right. to... Yeah. Right. But we're not allowed to talk about the compounding effects on an entire group of people in this country 
of things that have happened to them. We have to act like slavery, for example, happened in a vacuum and that it didn't impact anything that came after it. Uh, We have to act like housing segregation happened in a vacuum and nothing came before or after it. Um, It's just you're not wanting to We just woke up one morning and that's the way it was. Yeah, it was so weird. Rosa Parks sat on a bus (laughs) and racism was over. (laughs) Uh, uh, Zian in our Discord is being like, yet they taught Christopher Columbus. See, the problem, though, is yeah. they don't actually teach us the history of Christopher Columbus in this country until we're much <laughs> older. Um, right. We were taught a very sanitized version of that story, unfortunately. Um, but it really feels to me, and I feel like this all started with Trump back in the fall um, when he banned any kind of diversity initiative on the federal level that was grounded in critical race theory. Um, again, he was lumping it in as sort of like any attempt by anyone to talk about race ever equals critical race theory. And it feels like that's how people are treating this now. Um, So just because your child's curriculum might cover some uncomfortable moments in our nation's history, that does not critical race theory make. (laughs) I saw a great tweet. Mm -hmm. Uh, the other day that was like, if your 10-year-old is learning critical race theory, congratulations, your child's in law school. Because that's not <laughs> what they're learning. <laughs> Take it as um, a compliment they're being taught this. <laughs> I know. Um, but it's really just the Republican Party has found its new boogeyman, right? Like we remember uh, during the Obama years, one of their boogeymen was that Obama was a secret Muslim And they Mm -hmm. were doing a lot of fear mongering about um, Sharia law being passed in this country, which, you know, shock, it wasn't. Nobody ever attempted it. Um, So this is just their latest battle cry to assemble the troops and get people freaking out about something that doesn't need to be freaked out about. Um, And I think that it's highly ironic that for a party that is so concerned with educational institutions limiting free speech, that's exactly what they're doing. Oh yeah, hypocrites. Sorry, I just like all the time. No, it's. it's I was so going to make though. a similar point about how they handle socialism. You know, it's this dirty word yeah. that's off limits. It can't be taught. It can't be practiced. If you like anything to do with socialism, you are the devil. Yeah, nothing about socialism is good. Right. Yeah. No, and people definitely don't partake in things that are socialist. See government handouts during the course of the pandemic. Yeah. One of my favorites with that is, um, I don't know if you've seen any of the the troll footage that people have put together where they go to these, you know, Trump rallies or Tea Party rallies, and they'll go to people and be like, hey, so what do you think about the news that the government is going to take over Medicare? And people will legit <laughs> be like, no, the government needs to stay away from Medicare. And I'm just like, oh, Jesus. I knew it. <laughs> People like to throw away, throw around the word socialist and socialism like it's, you know, a curse word. Yeah, that's exactly you hit the nail on the head there. Like that is exactly what's happening with critical race theory. This is just. Yeah. Some people are uncomfortable facing 
the less glamorous parts of our history, as well as the less glamorous parts of our present. And rather than deal with it, rather than talk about race and racism, they want to say, well, talking about racism is racist. So just don't talk about it. If we ignore it, it's not there. Um, And that's just, again, not how any of this works. Well, here's a sort of lighter story. I I just have to roll my eyes at this. So my home state of Nevada, uh, the governor signed a bill making the state the first in the nation to hold its presidential primary for now. So that means their primary would take place before the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. As most people know, those are the first in the nation and they love to brag about it, but they are now pissed that Nevada jumped the line and is trying to go first in future presidential elections. Nevada argues that its population is way more diverse than New Hampshire and Iowa, and that's true. Those two states are overwhelmingly white. New Hampshire is like 91% white. Nevada, on the other hand, is only 48.2% white. 30% of Nevada is actually Hispanic and 9% is black. So way more diverse than these other two. And uh, another reason that it might be time to make another state go first is that Iowa, remember, a few years ago had major issues with their caucus. We didn't get a winner for like a week or two, I think. (laughs) And they, they just royally fucked it up. And it was embarrassing for Dems. That was the problem. I mean, this was an easy point for Republicans to hit on and bitch about. Oh, Democrats, they can't get it together. What the hell? So I wanted to ask you two. Should a more diverse state go first? Does it make sense for Nevada to go first for that reason? And also, I just have to roll my eyes because now this is going to be a pissing contest because New Hampshire and Iowa don't want to lose the dignity, the honor of going first in the nation. So now they're going to try to jump ahead of Nevada. And it's like, it's stupid what this fight is about to be. I think if a state, if any state is going to go first, then it should be a state that's more representative of the fabric of this country. However, I think it's dumb that we have a whole primary season anyway. It contributes to unnecessarily dragging out our campaign season. I really just don't see why we can't primary all on the same day. Mm -hmm. Just get it over with. Yeah, I agree. And also, like, I don't know, diversity does not, like, ethnic diversity does not necessarily... um, Sometimes it doesn't really mean very much, you know, I think it really uh, like it sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't like there are plenty of, um, you know, uh, Hispanic and also black people that that vote uh, conservatively. Right. Mm -hmm. And to that point, too, Pam, diversity doesn't necessarily mean inclusion. So if we're putting a more diverse state at the forefront of our primary season, um, then, you know, say voter turnout isn't great, um, then that becomes the talking point of like, well, these people like clearly didn't want to participate. And it's really like, no, the question should be how accessible was it for them to participate? <laughs> um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, just like treating something, treating diversity like a checkbox thing. Like, yeah, we put a diverse state at the front of it. We did it, guys. We fixed America's diversity problem. That's not, that's (laughs) not going to do anything. (laughs) Yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, what happens in the 
just this past presidential election cycle where Joe Biden did not do well no. in Iowa and New Hampshire and the third one until he got to South Carolina. I think that was fourth or fifth. And he did incredibly well. Yeah. And there were a lot more black people in uh, that voting demographic than in the other states. Um, and that gave him the momentum he needed. But I also remember Laura pointing out that the, these uh, early caucuses don't necessarily they're not necessarily reflective of of how things turn out on the whole anyway. No. So mm -hmm. I feel like that would be true regardless of whether you had a more diverse state or not. Yeah, because candidates, you know, candidates who do well in caucuses and vice versa, you know, versus candidates who do better in primaries. It, it's not necessarily a reflection of how the outcome is going to look, because if you're starting with Iowa in February, March, something, something like, that, like yeah. that, and you have primaries and this is for anyone outside the U.S., our primary system is ridiculous. The primaries will start in like January or February. We won't have the final primaries until June it takes six months to go through all of these states. And it's like, just let them do it on the same damn day and get it over with. Well, and this Nevada development is another reason I'm stressed out, because now we're extending the presidential election cycle even longer when it's already way too long to begin with. Some countries are a fraction mm -hmm. of how we do it here. And we all know how the media handles this. I mean, it, we're already hearing about the 2024 election. No surprise, of course. But like, this is the new normal. It's the day after one election. It's time to start talking about what happens in four years. Forget the midterms. They're already on to the next presidential election. And it's too much. It's too long. All this needs to be a hell of a lot shorter. Yeah. Well, and it has impacts like the fact it's pretty well known in American politics that a first-term president, their first 100 days is when they're going to get the most accomplished because after that, they're mm -hmm. having to think about re-election already. Yeah. So dumb. Right. So anyway, I'm not looking forward to the developments that occur here, but I was actually a little excited to see that I'm in a state that might potentially go first in 2024. Yep. Andrew will so that's get cool, to help 2023. define the Democratic landscape in the next I'm election. I'm casting the ballot that will determine the next president of these United States, <laughs> or at least the one running in our party. I was expecting you to do that in your Bernie voice. <laughs> in these United States. We never spoke about uh, Bernie's hotel rider and how he needs his hotel room set to like 65 degrees and uh, have a comforter on his bed and... Did you guys hear that story a few weeks ago? I did not hear about that. <laughs> oh, he's a total diva when it comes to hotel rooms. It's really funny. <laughs> Bernie Sanders. No, Bernie Sanders is our Lord and sa Savior. Andrew, you can't say anything <laughs> negative about him. His hotel room must be kept at 60 degrees. How is that even possible to keep a room that cold? I, can you really that get a room great. down to 60? <laughs> Honestly, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's feasible. No. All right. Well, we're going to be moving on to recommendations here in a moment. But first, I wanted to take a quick moment to chat about our final sponsor of the week. They're Felix Gray, and they can help save your eyes as they've saved all of ours over the last couple of months. Five years ago, Felix Gray realized our eyes were not made to look at screens all day. 
So they designed glasses to make daily screen time more comfortable and the workday more productive. As someone who works from home and immediately turns around to podcast in the evenings, my Felix Grays have really made a difference for me. Before these glasses, I was experiencing so much eye strain and getting a lot of headaches because I was staring at my devices with no blue light filter. Felix Grey lenses filter 15 times more blue light that can make screen time tough on eyes and disruptive to sleep. I personally have the Hopper glasses in Seneca Mist, and I'd been wanting to try clear or light-colored frames for a while, so I'm killing two birds with one stone with these glasses. Yeah, I love mine too. I do wear glasses, uh, full disclosure, for like reading and working anyway, but the Felix Grey ones are quickly becoming my favorite just because it just feels really nice to know that I'm taking care of my eyes. That's really important. And mm-hmm. it, you can definitely see a difference even with the the first wear, honestly. I don't think anybody really realizes how much that blue light really starts affecting your sluggishness and stuff like that. So I'm glad you feel the same way because I was shocked by the immediate difference I felt mm-hmm. when I started wearing these. Yeah. I know. And I have to say, like, today I like got in the habit of just opening my computer and starting to work. And I worked for a couple hours and I was like, oh, why do my eyes hurt? I was like, oh, I'm not wearing my mm-hmm. glasses. And I went and put them on and it was like immediate relief. Yes. Yeah. Pretty yep. amazing. And they're also available with and without prescriptions. Uh, and they come with a 30 day money back guarantee. So a win all around. Get yourself a pair of glasses made for the 21st century and designed for modern, hardworking eyes. You have nothing to lose except maybe some eye strain. Go to felixgrayglasses.com slash M-I-L-L for the best blue light glasses on the market. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com slash M-I-L-L. Free shipping, free returns, free exchanges. felixgrayglasses.com slash M-I-L-L. Time for some recommendations. Oh my gosh, panel. Over the past year, I've seen so many people complaining about the Apple Podcasts app. It has gotten really bad. They keep trying to change it and it just never gets better. I seriously, I hear from people I never hear from who come to me for some reason and I'm like, Andrew, what is Apple doing with the Apple Podcasts app? I have not used it for a long time, so I can't tell you specifically all the things that are wrong with it. I know uh, Pat has had some syncing issues and playback issues, and he'll just randomly download old episodes, and people don't get how it works anymore. I want to recommend a podcasting app that I love. It's called Pocket Casts. It's for iOS and Android. It's free to use. It has all the features you could possibly want in a podcast app, but it's still very simple to use. There are lots of great settings you can customize, including the fast forward or rewind button. So you can change how uh, far it'll go backwards or forwards. And I know that can be really great if podcasts have long advertisements that you don't want to sit through, for example. Um, You can also pop in custom RSS feeds. So if you're a patron, you can pop in the custom RSS feed and listen to the ad-free Mega Millennial that we release each week. Um, Just a really great app. This will solve all of your podcast app problems, I promise. I want to recommend a show that I'm following on YouTube right now. It's called Are You Scared? Um, If anybody followed um, Shane Madej and Ryan Bergara from BuzzFeed Unsolved, um, they have started their own um, 
entertainment network called Watcher. Um, So they've only got one more season of their BuzzFeed Unsolved show, but they've already started producing content with Watcher. And um, one of their newer shows is called Are You Scared? The format's pretty similar to what they've done with their BuzzFeed Unsolved shows. But the cool thing is they're actually pulling people's original um, horror narratives from like r slash no sleep or from listener submissions. And they always do a big reveal at the end of each story as to whether it was an invented story or if it was a true account. Um, So if you're into creepy shit like I am, that is a very entertaining show to check out. And there's lots of episodes available. Cool. So before we wrap up today's episode, we wanted to give a shout out to some of our newest patrons, Laura. Yeah, our latest patrons are Curtis, Kelsey, Ashley, Jason, and Kayla. Welcome, y'all. Thanks for your support. Yes, we love when our listeners support us. It makes us feel so good, and it really drives us to continue doing this show that we love to do so much. It helps make the show a priority in our lives. Uh, Coming up this week on our Patreon, we will be recording and releasing a new variety show episode in which we are live taste testing and reviewing hard seltzers. Since summer is officially underway in just about a week and hard seltzers are more popular than ever and you go into the food store and you see so many different options, well, we're going to try a few for everybody and, of course, talk about the OG hard seltzer, White Claw. I don't know if they're the OG, but they definitely became synonymous with hard seltzer and they are definitely the most popular, it seems. The Claw is Law, after all. The Claw is Law. So that'll be available at patreon.com slash millennial. You also get access to, here's something I haven't said in a while, Mega Millennial, which is ad-free millennial with After Dark, all in one easy-to-consume episode each week. Uh, you can take a custom RSS feed from Patreon and pop that into most podcasting apps, not Spotify yet, but all the others. And then you can get Mega Millennial just like you do regular public millennial. Patreon.com slash millennial. What's happening in After Dark today? We are going to be taking a quiz um, that will demonstrate our knowledge of all things cybersecurity. Um, So we actually, we all should have taken the quiz before this, but we're going to get together and talk about our results as well as some of the findings. Y'all know this is what happens when you let me plan after dark. This is a Pew Research study, of course. Um, But we're going to (laughs) be playing also a mini edition of the number based on the results and also talking about cybersecurity in general, whether we've ever been victims of any cyber attacks or if we've known anyone who has couple of other reminders. Make sure you are following the show for free on your favorite podcasting app, which is now Pocket Casts, so you never miss an episode. You can contact us by writing directly to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And finally, you can follow us on social media. We are Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.